Welcome to The Vent Room, where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. Hey, everybody. Today, we're speaking to Gabrielle Davis. She's a COPD educator and nicotine cessation coordinator, a delegate for Idaho at the AERC, and a PACT member when and with those who don't know what PACT is. They are dealing with legislation and promoting the profession and lobbying for us on those AARC lobby days. Um, thanks for joining us today. I'm sure many of the listeners would be interested to know a little bit about your background and how you transitioned to this particular niche of respiratory care. So my background, I've been a respiratory therapist since 2008 or nine. I should probably confirm either one of those, but at least 10 years. Um, I started my career in Detroit. I worked at, at Beaumont. I went to school in, in Michigan as well. Um, I moved to Chicago after that and worked at Northwest Community Hospital. And then um, I was in Chicago three years, and my wife took a job at Boise State University. So now I'm in Idaho. Um, when I came to the hospital in Idaho, I was hired as a PRN therapist. Um, I wanted to be PRN because I took my wife's benefits. So it was great. I was living a life. So I was working you know, maybe 16 hours a week, um, and it was great. And then they had a position open for COPD educator, and this position at this hospital within a system hadn't existed before. Um, and one of our sister hospitals had the position um, and had kind of a, a program. But I, the position came to my hospital. I applied for it, um, and I, I got it one year um, after I was working there. So actually on the, the day of my one year, I was offered that position. Sometimes it's interesting how fate falls into that. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, right before the position was, was open, I went to my manager and I have really good, I'm really lucky to have really good relationships with, you know, the leadership in my department. And I said, you know, I have my resignation letter um, typed up and I think I'm going to go ahead and quit. And she said, well, why, you know, don't do that. Why? You know, and I said, I just, I don't feel fulfilled. Um, I, I didn't have a lot of decision making power there with, with myself. Like, so the most of my decisions would come, what time should I eat lunch? I just, I didn't feel like I was, my brain was being utilized, um, in a way that could be helpful to the patients and the department. So I, I just felt stagnant. So I was prepared to move on to something else. And she encouraged me to wait. Um, and that position came open. Once I was in the position, um, I, I've always been passionate about nicotine addiction and i think it's because we overlook it as it's not one of the big uh, parts of testing involved in getting our rrt credential and um i noticed we had a tobacco program and i was just you know looking over some of the things from the tobacco program which i didn't participate in before and then i heard some of my colleagues um i was outside of a room and i heard one of my colleagues talking to somebody about cessation and i didn't like it I didn't like the things they were saying and the way they were going about it. So I asked the department educator at the time. She was older program, and she had been for a number of years since it um, came to fruition in 2014, but she was covering seven hospitals. So I asked her if it was okay if I'd take over the program, and she said, please, she said, yes, take it. Take it off my plate. So I was able to get that program as well, and here we are. That sounds amazing. So what does a typical day look like for you dealing with COPD education and nicotine cessation? So, so 
at the COPD educated that portion, I see uh, people that's um, in the hospital for exacerbation or someone that the physician has ordered our order set for, and we'll see them every day that we're there. The key to that is we're saying every day that they're there, but our length of stay at St. Luke's is 3.4 days. So it really is three to four days that we see them. So it's not very a very long time because they, they aren't there that long, but it sounds nice when we stay every day. And um, so we go to them and our goal is to fix four problems. So I believe that people come back to the hospital for four different reasons. One is literacy. Now, I know we talk about things being written at a fifth grade level and things people should understand. But if we think about it, some people that can't read at all. So it doesn't matter what level it's written at if they can't read. Now, while we can't fix their literacy, we can fix the way we provide education so they can receive it, regardless of if they have the ability to read or not. So that's the first thing. Second thing is health literacy. They can read. They can hear us. Um, but they have no idea what we're saying. And because as medical professionals, we have, uh, we're unable sometimes to get rid of all the medical jargon. And some patients are ashamed to say, I don't know, or to ask for clarification. Um, so th- these are two things so far, literacy, health literacy, that we can fix. We can do a better job at providing education. I think also with um, health literacy, it's also that culture. Um, I've I'm working in an environment where it's very multicultural and understanding that some cultures are not going to speak up because it's part of their culture. You don't inquire, you don't ask questions, you kind of just listen. So I think depending on where someone's working as well is kind of understanding how that culture perceives medical professionals. Because I know in some cultures, they're more passive and they'll just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they don't really speak out when they don't understand because again it's it, it's considered disrespectful if they don't understand because you gave them an explanation and that's true and, and the thing is we have to be okay with that too um and still make sure we provide them you know enough education that they learn realistically you know our goals are different from the patient's goal you know the our our goals are supposed to be hospital's goal which is don't come back in 30 days the patient's goal might just be like i want to get out of the hospital so i can make it to my grandson baseball game and and we have to meet in the middle on those goals and uh, you know the part you mentioned about um, culture is very important as I work in a place that is predominantly white um, and I am black so even receiving education for me sometimes it has to be a dance for them to receive it or believe it or respect it so all those things come into play um, and health literacy is one of the the main aspects and that you know multicultural competency um, that's included within that. Um, the third thing is, is finance. You know, we have patients that want to be compliant and will be compliant, but they don't have the financial resources to be compliant. And, you know, that could include pulmonary rehab, the ability to have insurance that covers it, um, the, the, the money involved in paying for medications or inhalers um, that they need. Sometimes it could be not having electricity to plug in the nebulizer or to plug in the oxygen or CPAP or, you know, BiPAP, whatever they're using at home. Um, again, those aren't things that are fault, but those are things we can assist with. Um, at our program, we work with a, a part of the pharmacy. We call them the meds to beds team. And what they do is um, me or somebody on my team will write a medication recommendation, and that includes the drug class that is missing from their home regimen based on gold guidelines, barometry, and symptomology. And we 
we write that uh, merit rec and it goes to the pharmacy. Pharmacy members of the team will go in and look at that patient's personal formulary and see which one is best covered. You know, and then we have a conversation to determine if they can physically use that inhaler or that nebulizer. Once we have our recommendation, it goes to the physician and the physician will write um, usually verbatim what we ask for in their discharge orders. And that takes the, that takes care of the financial piece. You know, what? another thing that goes along with that is that the pharmacy, during the week anyway, will find coupons and programs and help the patient sign up for the program so they can the medicine can be affordable. Um, and also with that piece, if they're in the hospital and they're discharging, the pharmacy will deliver the medication to the bedside. Well, a lot of people are, are happy about that piece, the best part of that is if it's the only time you can have meds without having money. So let's say their copay is twenty dollars and they don't have twenty dollars. If you go to a pharmacy and you know you take a prescription in and they say it's twenty dollars and you don't have it, they're not giving you your medication. With our meds to beds team, they'll give them a bill. Now likely that will be written off because the hospital will rather lose four hundred dollars than forty thousand. So that's that financial piece. And, and you know, with pulmonary rehab, we have scholarships too. So, you know, we're trying to take all the barriers away, whatever we can do to help the patient. It's, it's a team effort. Um, the last thing I would say is access. So, you know, a lot of patients, I live in Idaho, so a lot of rural spaces, even though I work in Boise, which is the capital, there's a lot of rural spaces and a lot of people that travel to come to the hospital. And unfortunately, it's by ambulance because we know the disparities um, that involve rural health overall. And what happens is um, we may have somebody that has money to be compliant and don't have the ability to get to a pulmonary rehab or they don't have the ability to pick up their meds. Um, so we try to fix that and see what we could come up with. We have ride programs and if they can't get to pulmonary rehab, we'll have somebody from our team that is an exercise physiologist come and show them some exercises they can do at home to help with that. Those are the four reasons I, th I think that um, people come back to the hospital or come to the hospital overall are those four reasons. And so our team, what our team does is every day we talk to them about something involving um, self-management at home. Um, while, you know, the, the important part is that we tell them about their disease, how it manifests and what they can do to, to help their disease and be successful. Our number one goal is to build rapport with the patient. We know that when you provide education or even a conversation to the patient, most of it they won't remember. But if you have rapport, they'll remember more of it. You know, so for me, that looks like, you know, one of the things I do is uh, I wear um, bright sneakers because it's a conversation starter, especially for the elderly population. I have a question. Um, I bring games into the education. So in my office, I have a bunch of games, Uno, Connect Four, things they can um, touch and something we can build rapport with. And while it does build rapport, one of the other things I'm able to notice is how they use their hands. Um, so I can determine if they, how they will use their inhaler without being condescending. Can they read? How do they see color? Because some of the medications are, the inhalers are different colors and they might get them confused with another inhaler. That means they might take it wrong. So our goal is to find out what barriers they have and help those barriers so they can be successful. And, you know, in between that, of course, we provide COPD education, you know, best aspirometry if they need it, bronchopulmonary hygiene. We hit on all those um, different points so they can be successful when they leave. And, and my, uh, on my team, I have 12 people. 
And so these 12 people only work when I'm not working. Right now, I work Tuesdays through Friday. So when I'm not there, they have a four-hour period out the day where they can see the COPD patient. Um, the priority is given to people who just came in and people who are leaving. And then um, secondary are the, the people who have been seen by me or somebody from my team prior. They also, if my load is heavy, they jump in and, and you know, and help whenever I need them to, usually without asking. I'm, I'm really lucky to have the team I, I have because they're all really in it to win it for the patient. I, I think you I think you highlighted two points, right? I think you highlighted two great points. One is that building rapport by playing that game, it's it's not I think with a lot of patients, the person comes in, they do their job, they leave, right? I feel like sometimes when you're on that other side of the bed, it seems more of like an assembly line and everybody's always trying to get their work done, go to the next patient. So with the COPD education, being able to sit there and and build that report and play that game and you're using that game as a vessel to observe a lot of other things that you need to know. And I think that's a great way of of also not making it feel like that assembly line that, that you're just checking a box as they, as they're going through the hospital. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and it came about is because you realize the first thing when you come in a hospital, yes, the hospital gives you all these things and have you do all these things. But the first thing they take away is control. And people like to have some control and independence over their lives. So, you know, coming in a room and not saying I'm here to do, to do this and we will do this and we have to do this. It's very different um, when you come in and say, hey, I'm Gabby. I want to chat with you about that. You want to play Uno? You know, it's very different because now they have some control. I always give them the option, if, even for just to talk to me. Like, hey, I'm Gabby. I'm here to talk to you about blah, 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 blah. Is that okay right now? Now, many people, especially RTs, we can't do that because, you know, a lot of us are providing uh, things on a frequency, QID, BID. Um, and to give that option to the patient, the first thing I notice is, oh, they they either say, thank you so much, you know, yes, please come back, or no, 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 it's okay, you can stay, because just because I gave them the, the simple option, um, and, and they're really, really excited, you know, about that, and then you learn things. One of the things I learned recently is I had a patient that came back, and she hadn't been there for a year, a cute little, cute little lady, and um, we were sitting there, we were playing Uno. And I was talking to her, and and she was, I'm like, oh, tell me, how's your daughter been? Because I remember her daughter. She's like, oh, she's, uh, she broke her femur, and she's been in the house the last 45 days. And, you know, she started talking about her son-in-law. It's like, oh, he's trying to do everything, and he can't manage it. And, you know, we're just having a good conversation. And then we realized, we both realized at the same time that her daughter was the person who picked up her meds for her, and she hadn't seen her in 45 days, which means she hadn't had a refill of her maintenance meds. Now, none of these things were in the chart, but based on rapport, you're able to find those things out. Now she's on a, a delivery. She's getting, de you know, it delivered. But those are things we wouldn't have found out if we didn't have a conversation. Right. It's that personal touch and getting to know that. I think another thing that you mentioned that for like a COPD nicotine cessation program, you know, you only work, it sounds like four days a week. So you're there most of, most of the week. But a lot of places that try to start these kind of programs up might identify one person. So I think that one of the things that I'd like to highlight with your group is you do get to backfill 
when you're not there and there's that protected time for the other trained people to go out there and do that outreach within your organization as well. So for a program to be successful, it can't be just one person going out to do this training. What, you know, especially if, you know, people go on vacation, you can't just be like, oh, COPG education isn't happening this week because I'm out of town. Exactly. You know, and it's good to have a backup plan and patients, especially the ones that return. Um, they like to see us because we're not coming in to force them to do a breathing treatment. We're not coming in to do, hopefully it's not the same person that's coming in to do an ABG. Um, you know, you, you have all these different things. And actually, we just added some people to Midnight because our, we, we're planning an expansion into ER. But we planted people on Midnight for that. Um, so it could be a 24-hour 24 24-hour 24 thing. You know, the people on my team, um, the only requirement is to be able to talk to a patient. Um, I can teach you about COPD. COPD is teachable. Um, being being able to talk to, being comfortable talking to a patient is a little bit harder, harder, teachable but harder. So most of the training for the program actually involves rapport building first. It's about 75% rapport building and then 25% um, COPD education. So essentially, so yeah, I'm I'm very happy to have those 12 people. Yeah. So th- those 12 people are regular staff as well. Yes. And so when they're doing this, they don't have to do anything else. And how do you collaborate with the bedside staff that isn't also trained in in your training program? How do you reinforce the education when they're getting their episodic treatments? So everybody, every our whole department has to take part in uh, patient education overall. So in our we, we have EPIC so they can see what we talked about in depth already um, because it's, we, we chart appropriately. So everybody with the, if you're in a room 15 minutes of QID, that's an hour of patient education. And you have a captive audience because they're doing the breathing treatment or whatever they're in there doing. So everybody has to talk about um, any part of education and chart it in um, the computer as well. The other thing is um, we are not, I'm not there when people discharge. And a big part of our um, education is what happens when they discharge. So we make, we don't know what the physician will order until they order it. So once we find out, once that green dot pops up and we know that the patient has discharge order, the nurse calls whoever has that patient um, and the that RT will go and do the discharge education with placebo. So everybody is involved. The perk about the team is that we have more time for that. Even though it's not a big revenue making piece, we have the time allotted to spend with the patients more than 15 minutes if need be. So everybody participates in it. And most people are, are, are pretty supportive. Um, sometimes if, if somebody, is, they call the RT and I'm there, um, sometimes the RT will call me like, hey, I'm busy. Are you able to go do this? And I will do it. If I'm not, they will do it. But they know that everybody has to take part in it. And what's important about that is not just having me or my team go, is that arms the, the RT with more information. So I feel like everybody should be involved in everything because the things that you don't do, what if you go to another place and you have to do it? You know, so I want them to be able to, you know, use the, th- the things they know, the things we've learned in school and outside of school in their everyday life so they won't, you know, be at a disadvantage if they go to another place. You know, for instance, when I came to to St. Luke, we were using NEBS and inhalers, but we only used inhalers in the ICU and in PEDS. And in ICU and in PEDS and ICU, sometimes the nurses would give it. So when we went to all NEBS, Nobody knew how to give um, patient education on inhalers when they discharge because we didn't use them anymore. I'm like, hey, we have to learn about 
no, we're not using it, but we still need to learn about it so we can help our patients. So overall, you know, everybody participates. The nicotine cessation program, I have 18 people on my team. Strategically, 12 of those are the same people that's on the COPD team. They also get four hours a day for nicotine cessation, and they go out and see everybody that uses nicotine. Um, I'm lucky that in the hospital, I mean, RTs can write for uh, patches, gum, and lozenges. So everybody on my team has that permission to write for patches, gum, and lozenges. And if they, um, if the physician orders a protocol, like the RT protocol, they get that automatically. Um, if a patient accepts um, nicotine replacement therapy or cessation counseling, we will see them up to three days after they start their nicotine replacement therapy. Again, that's strategic because our length of stay is, is similar. Um, it's about four days overall. So we see them every day. If they decline, we make sure, again, this is what rapport building, that we make them comfortable enough so they they know they can reach out to us at any, any time. And we can come up and assess them and, and order nicotine replacement therapy or provide cessation counseling to them. I will say during the first, if, you, if we visit somebody on the first day, the main thing we hear is get out of my room. Um, and that's very common because nobody wants to be admitted to the hospital and it's overwhelming. Um, and we just say, okay, well, you know, you call us if you get any cravings or you want to chat about it, and we'll come back. Uh, the second day, usually the morning, we get a call back because that's when we know the cravings are the strongest, usually in the morning, because your receptors are upset that you didn't feed them nicotine while you were sleeping. We get a lot of calls second day in the morning um, of people who, who want nicotine replacement therapy. They still might refuse counseling, but, you know, we get them nicotine replacement therapy. The third day is when we get a lot of calls because they realize they've been successful, you know, these few days without nicotine, and they want to continue it as they're preparing to be discharged. So if they decline, we won't see them again unless they call us, usually. Um, and a lot of times they do. And if they accept, we see them for up to three days after they start nicotine replacement therapy. Um, oftentimes, if, if I have time, because usually besides me seeing COPD education, it's a lot of things I do with programming and assist other hospitals in our system. Um, so sometimes I'll do it, but it's very rare that I do all of the nicotine cessation um, in a day unless we're short-staffed because I don't want them to go without it. I will do all the people that I see for COPD, though. I know with smoking cessation, I've worked at some hospitals that, you know, smoking cessation, they check the box, you give them the, the pamphlet, and that was it. And that's really not the best way to go about it. Do you have any tips for introducing the idea of smoking cessation therapy or nicotine therapy for like that person who's not just ready to quit? They're not throwing you out, but they're, you know, like there's that healthcare model where they're in the pre-contemplation phase and then they're in the contemplation phase and then they try it. So when they're in that pre-contemplation phase of uh, considering it, what would be some tips for the respiratory therapist in having those conversations? with patients? Well, the first thing um, I would say is, is to learn about the, you're, you're talking about the trans-theoretical model of change, is to learn what that is. Um, because a lot of us don't, and a lot of us don't because um, know it because it's not required in schooling, because it's not required on the test to know. So I, I would say it will start all the way back at the RT programs, if you, if you follow me. Um, but in the hospital, those are things you learn. The second thing is motivational interviewing. Um, I would say is the number one thing to to use when you talk to to people who aren't ready to quit um, and not and be okay to be rejected. See, a lot of us aren't okay with being rejected. Like, no, I'm not ready. And then we come back and we use fear-based or guilt-based tactics. Like, well, you'll die if this happens or you'll have lung cancer if this happens. Well, 
Well, you, you're talking to people that's already in the hospital. So they don't want to hear about bad outcomes because they've already experienced a bad outcome. Um, there's no research to say fear or guilt-based tactics work. The number one thing I ask patients that I get a, re- a good response from when I go in is, how are your cravings? Because I'm asking about them. I'm not asking about what they've done. Because we have this idea that, you know, nicotine addiction is a is a choice versus an addiction. Um, or another thing, if they say, oh, I'm not really ready to quit or something like that. I'm like, oh, have you tried to quit before? Tell me what that's like. Tell me what that was like for you. Um, and women, when I talk to women who have had children, one of the things they say is, I quit before I quit while I was pregnant. And, you know, and this is something you learn in motivational interview. So I'm like, oh, nine months. You went nine months. That's almost a year. Wow, that's a big deal. You almost went a year without, you know, using. And they're like, huh. It makes them think, too, like, oh, I did, didn't I? And th- these are things for motivation interview. And these are things we, we kind of all were already do in everyday life, even outside of the RT world. Uh, but you want to encourage them and don't use fear or, or guilt-based tactics. Right now um, on my team, all everybody has to be, it's all addiction-focused. So you can't have the idea that um, nicotine is a choice. Um, you have to be able to build rapport with the patients that way. You can't shame them. Um, so the thing I would say is to ask them about them and not necessarily ask them about something they've done to themselves. Um, usually we get to come in after a doctor or a nurse has already scolded them about smoking. They've used words like vasoconstriction and myocardial infarction, which are scary words to them and use it because they don't know what it means. Um, but I just come in and we, we talk about cravings like, oh, let me help you with that. Tell me what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked. What don't you like about nicotine replacement therapy? Oh, you tried Chantix. Why didn't you like it? We talk about their pathway to it, and that's how you re- you build rapport. And usually at the end of it, they're like, oh, maybe I will try it. Maybe I will try some gum. Maybe I will try a lot of it. Or maybe I will call, you know, the quit line once I leave or something like that. So I think it's very minimal things that we can we can learn on our own. One of the, the best sources of uh, they have a book called Health is Motivational Interview in Healthcare. Uh, it's a it's a great book and it's an easy read and there are things you can implement right on the spot. Um, there are teachable things that you can teach to RT. Um, also, uh, we've reached out to some of the psychologists that work for our hospital are trained in motivational interviewing to have them come do classes. Um, but those those are the things. The pamphlet means less to me. Do I have a pamphlet that I give to patients? Absolutely. Do I go over the pamphlet with them? No. Let's talk. I'm not going to sit here and make you. I'm giving you the book because I have to give you the book and because you'll want the numbers that's in here. Look over it at your leisure because, again, that can be looked, viewed as uh, fear or guilt-based tactics. Look at it at your leisure. But let's talk about your path. What are your goals? I've had a patient. Um, a few months back, I talked about this at the AARC conference as well. And he, uh, I went to his room and he was on oncology floor and I, you know, asked him if he was ready, if he was interested in quitting. And he told me to get out of his room. So I said, okay, well, you call me if you change your mind. Next day, we'll call him Bob. Bob called and said, Gabby, you know, I'm ready to quit. I said, okay. And he asked me if I would come see him. No problem. So I go to him to his room and I say, hey, Bob, what made you want to quit? And he was like, well, my granddaughter just had a baby. I said, oh, congratulations. Because uh, now, even though he's told me to get out of his room prior, we now we have a relationship through rapport building. 
Um, and I said, oh, congratulations. And I said, uh, he was like, the problem is, is that my granddaughter won't bring her over to my house because I smoke. I said, oh, he was like, well, I got six months to live and I would like to spend that six months with my family. Um, so I need to quit smoking. So here's, here's me with my goal of you, you know, being interested in quitting. And his goal is just to be around family. And this goes back to what I was saying about COPD. You have to figure out how your goals can mesh together. Because if you think about it, even though we have two different goals, those goals are really the same. And so we, we figured out like what he can do. And he was a, uh, predominantly a, a chewer, smoked too, but, you know, really enjoyed chewing. And so we had to fix that part. Like, what can we do to do that? So, again, that's not in the pamphlet. You know, that's, again, based on rapport building, being nice. Not shaming, tone of voice is important. Um, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So just be open, be open to rejection. Learn about the trans theoretical model of change. Learn about what addiction actually is. ARC has a bunch of resources that are good resources. There are a lot of free resources out to explore those in each state. My state um, has a program where the program mails out free patches, gum, and lozenges to any Idahoan. A lot of people don't know that. People like hearing the word free. So find out what is free in, uh, in whatever state you work in and see how you can um, help coax them into cessation by using that. Definitely interesting. You know, it's it's a I think this is the realm where respiratory therapists can shine. There's a lot of hospitals expanding and adding this into their their programs or their departments. I think if you do it the right way, it's definitely going to be successful especially if you're having enough people involved, you have your primary people and your secondary people and, and there's that backup plan for when, you know, let's say, God forbid, you had a cold and you couldn't make it to work, you know, the patients are still getting taken care of. For someone interested in becoming either a COPD educator and or really knowing about nicotine cessation, what would be your advice to get into that role or prepare for that role if it comes up in their hospital? You know, I would say that even if they don't have the role, still prepare for it because they may see you doing things that make them want to create one, you know? So in my hospital, per se, what I viewed when I got there was that everything was based on seniority. This is my complete view. I was only there a year and it seemed like when positions came up, it was whose turn is it? Who's been a, you know, the the guiding principle was, how long have you been here? But when I interviewed for the job, the two people that also interviewed it have been there a lot longer than me. And one of them have been a therapist longer than me. So I would say advocate for the need for it, even if it's not available. Um, the other thing I would say to do is, for the nicotine part, is learn about addiction. And for the COPD part, too, because we know 75% of people with COPD comes from smoking. And a large number of the COPD population continues to smoke. So learn about addiction, how that affects, how that affects patients. Obviously, you should have to learn about COPD education. Know the gold guideline well, or at least enough to where you can teach something to a patient or a fellow coworker. Um, start training yourself by talking to patients about it. Say you don't have a COPD education program, but you have patients with COPD. They deserve education. Give it to them then. You know, learn what they know. A lot of times when I go in room, it's like, oh, I've had, uh, you can't tell me anything about COPD. I've had COPD longer than you've been alive. And I'll say, oh, well, tell me about it. Teach me something. And then I'll just, you know, you can learn from the patient. I will also talk to leadership and let them know how important it is and let them know that you're willing to do it, even 
before they actual have, actually have a program. Right now, one of the um, critical access hospitals, they don't have a department where they can hire a COPD educator, but we've had uh, one of the RTs as a COPD champion. They can't necessarily get a new position, per se, because it's not feasible. So we have a champion, COPD champion. And who knows what that might turn into for him. So those are the things I would, would say. Do show your interest to leadership. But more importantly, show your interest to the patient and your coworkers. Two of the people that requested to be on my team are the same two people I interviewed against. So it's nice to have those people believe in you, although we were vying for the same job. Um, the other people around me that I, I got involved are RTs of all different experiences. So I have about four students that just graduated in May, and they're great. And I also have somebody that just joined that's retiring in two years. Um, most people have asked to join versus me asking them, which is nice. So they can see your passion for it, and they want to be involved. So be open to that. Make sure other people see your passion, other people see your interest, um, and do it because you're passionate about it, not, you know, do it because, oh, this might be a Monday through Friday job. Um, that usually doesn't work out. Does this role for you, do you do a lot of community outreach other than like the critical access hospital that they're trying to do that COPD champion? Are you out in the community at all? So for my role, some of the things I do is go into, uh, we do the HOSA event. It's the Health Occupation Student Association, I want to say. We do some of those um, around World COPD Day. We do a big event in the lobby. It just passed in on the 20th of November. Um, I would like to do more outreach. Uh, I do do outreach outside of my role. I'm not going into places as a COPD educator from St. Luke. I'm going into places as an RT so they know RTs can do the, um, do different things. So I'm involved in a lot of community outreach, and sometimes I, I try to mix it in, um, even if I'm at an event for another another reason. What's your favorite part about your role? Talking to patients, undoubtedly talking to patients, hearing their stories, um, seeing them being comfortable telling their stories, because I learned so much. Like the, the two stories I've told today to you about, you know, the patient who wasn't able to get her inhalers and the, the patient that, you know, was dying in six months. Those are also things I share with other patients. So listening to patients and them telling their stories are helping other patients. That's undoubtedly the, my favorite thing about um, working in COPD education. What's the most challenging part of the role? most challenging part of the role for me, though, is uh, talking to, to people experiencing homelessness and having all these resources and to know that we, you know, we want to help them with their disease process, but there's only so much we can do outside of the hospital. Um, and then making them comfortable enough, like, hey, you can do this, encouraging them, and know that they have all these barriers, you know, once they leave. I would say that's the the biggest challenge. And also seeing people that need help at home, like, for, and they don't have a support system. Um, so the peopling part still is the, the part that is most challenging to, to jump over those barriers, to find resources that all, all those outside of your the job description or what's required. You still want to go on but up and beyond to help folks and you're not always able to. Are there any certifications specific to this type of role? Um, there is not one that's re required, but AARC does have a, a COPD, I want to say it's called COPD Educator course. 
you have that, but there's no specific courses, I mean, for the role. The other thing that was required with my role with uh, nicotine cessation was to have a certified tobacco treatment specialist certification. Uh, it is quite expensive, but it's really worth it. And it's all, it's taught by behavioral health professionals. And they, they talk a lot about motivation interviewing and, and things like that. The biopsychosocial aspect of addiction, um, and cessation. That credential actually just changed over to a credential that'll be recognized by the NAADAC. Um, so it's actually changing over. So there'll be another test for that and then you'll be recognized under something separate from respiratory, but under addiction, which is great. The ARC also has a pulmonary disease educator course that will be be useful to the role. And then what motivates you or drives you and keeps you going professionally? Professionally, I would say the things I get to do outside of work. Um, and that's volunteerism. It's one of my most favorite things to do. So I know if I can do my job well at work, I can support myself and support the things I do outside of work involved in volunteerism. Um, also, again, patients. Patients are, are really motivating. Seeing people come back to the hospital for something different besides COPD or um, seeing people, you know, later in life and they, they're telling me like, oh, I've been, I've quit. It's been 62 days now. Or, you know, seeing people in the community that you, you've made an impact on. Um, when sometimes you don't get to get that feedback, you don't know what happened if you don't see it again. So I would say those are the things that, that motivate me. That's amazing. Well, Gabrielle, I thank you for joining us today and, and talking about your role. Hopefully, you know, people will research the trans theoretical model of change and look into motivational interviewing and learn about it so that they can add it to their day-to-day role, even if they're not in a COPD education and, and volunteering, I think, within your organization sometimes that one person taking an interest and and doing the research and and starting it out and then getting feedback from those patients can just snowball into to something bigger yeah i agree fingers crossed yes all right thanks so much 